boarding cats, birds, and other exotic pets. Located in Keshekta, New York, and on the web at dogmountainlodge.com. And from listeners like you. Hello, hello, hello. It's the local edition. News and information to keep you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm your host, Patricio Robayo. It's Friday. We survived the week. Thank you for spending your Friday evening with me. And the second half of the show, we'll be talking to Liza Fuentes. She's a research scientist at the Guttmacher Institute. We talked about reproductive rights. But first, since it's Friday on the local edition and every other Friday, we check in with the Times Union and see what's going on in the Hudson Valley. And this week, we turn our eye towards the spotted lanternfly. And on the phone this now is Philip Pontuso, managing editor from the Times Union, to tell us more. Philip, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So what can you tell us about this uh, uh, invasive species? Because that, that, that's what it is. It's an invasive species that doesn't belong in our neck of the woods, right? It's an invasive species. So, yeah, the spotted lantern fly, it's a, it's a plant-hopping insect. It's originally from Asia, but it has been in the United States since at least 2014, where it was first spotted in Pennsylvania, and it's fairly ubiquitous there. And in, in recent years, it has spread to New Jersey and New York City. Um, but their population is really building up in New York City in particular over the past couple of months. Um, there have been like a lot of reports of them just kind of swarming around. And in the, the new thing here for the Hudson Valley is that just in the last couple of weeks, um, the counties of Westchester, Rockland, Orange, and Ulster were all classified as having um, invasions or infestations of spotted lanternflies. Right. And most of the rest of the Catskills and, and the mid and upper Hudson Valley have had spottings. So they haven't been classified as an infestation just yet. So the numbers, the numbers are really growing uh, just in the past few weeks. So like I said, this, this is an invasive species. How, uh, you said, is, is uh, Asian, Asian in origin? How did it uh, make its way to our shores? Do you know um, that? No, it's actually unclear, although they are, um, or at least I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head. They are pretty famous um, for having good hitchhiking skills. So, right. I mean... Quite likely, what happened is it was it was brought over um, on a boat. Uh, they were we talked to an invasive species specialist from Cornell University's uh, Integrated Pest Management Program for a story this week, who said that um, it was recently spotted in Buffalo, where he believes they probably arrived by train. So they lay eggs in these huge masses of like thirty to fifty eggs at a time. Uh, they secrete them out in like this kind of sticky protective substance. Um, so it adheres really well to really kind of any surface. Um, and it also makes it so that they're quite easy to, uh, to spread. Now, so is this an invasive species? What exactly happens when they uh, come to an area? And what's the, what's the, what is the danger? What is the fear when, you, when the, these insects come to the, you know, the, the wildlife in, in your area? So they don't bite, and they're, they're not poisonous or dangerous to humans. They, mm-hmm. um, are, they swarm in huge numbers 
and they're quite large. They're, they're um, usually like an inch by an inch and a half. Um, and so they definitely negatively affect quality of life for people. But the, the bigger issue is that they cause a serious damage to trees and to crops. So um, they'll swarm trees and they ooze a sap called honeydew um, that can kind of, it's a kind of sweet, sticky substance that can cause a lot of um, cosmetic damage. It can cause a lot of rot. Um, and then they, they're really disruptive um, to crops. Uh, we did a story a couple of weeks ago now about how vineyards uh, in the Hudson Valley and Capital Region are preparing or trying to prepare anyway uh, for the threat of spot, spotted lantern flies um, and trying to protect their vines. I mean, obviously, when you see one in, you know, in on your porch or your backyard, you know, obviously you could step on it and kill it. But uh, what are what are their uh, what, what are the efforts exactly is, you know, uh, of these people who are concerned about the farmers and you know the environmentalists uh, uh, when this thing coming? What are they doing to sort of to get rid of it? Uh, are there's a sort of mass in, uh, extermination as far as like uh, what they did in the city when you went around in in, in trucks and you know uh, putting pesticide in the air? Exactly. How do we get rid of this spotted, uh, spotted uh, lanternfly? Um, that's that's a question that I think is a live question for the DEC and the pest management folks who are working on this now. I'm, I don't think we're going to see the mass dispersal of insecticide exactly. What they're recommending right now is that um, if you see one, yeah, you step on it. The more effective way, or I think the more effective Medium-term solution is to try to destroy the egg masses if you see them. So the, the aforementioned invasive species expert um, said that uh, the best way to do that is to scrape off these these egg masses, which, I, you know, as I mentioned, get laid in this kind of secreted uh, goo into a bag so you're not inadvertently spreading it and then pouring hand sanitizer or rubbing alcohol into the bag and, like, squishing it up. Um the DEC and uh, Cornell's Integrated Pest Management System and the Department of Ag and Markets are tracking the infestations right now, and they have a portal online um, on the Department of Ag and Markets website where people can report sightings. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the DEC does have an invasive species task force, which um, I think is mostly been focused at least over this past summer on uh, on plant invasives. Um, I'm not aware of any efforts that they're doing at this time to to battle to battle the spotted lantern fly, at least in this region. But um, seems like only a matter of time before they deploy more more resources to it. Yeah, definitely. I see. I'm looking at I'm right now on the internet the uh, how an egg mass looks like, and it's because uh, that's because that ooey substance looks like you definitely tell it's something on the tree. Um, so, you know, definitely if you see that a covered egg mass, definitely, uh, get rid of it. So, uh, Philip Antuso, um, is there anything else we ha- we need to know about the spotted lantern fly, uh, other than if we see it, stomp on it and get rid of it? <laughs> I guess maybe a, 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 uh, a visual description would be good. So yeah. I, I mentioned they're about an, oh, an inch long by an inch and a half wide. They're really quite a beautiful, um, insect. They, they are, have, yeah. Uh, these red and white, uh, Wings and you know they're, they're named after the spots on those wings. Um, really quite pretty. There's, it's easy to find photos online, uh, but unfortunately you're supposed to kill them if you see them. So, 
Yeah, it's like the spider lanternfly causes problems. And uh, so thank you so much, uh, Philip Pantuso, letting us know about this. Philip Pantuso is the managing editor for the Hudson Valley Times Union. He comes on to the air, WJFF Radio Catsco, every two weeks. And lets us know what's happening in the Hudson Valley. Philip, thank you so much for this. And we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Take care. It's Friday on the Local Edition. Moving right along, it's Hispanic, Hispanic Heritage Month, and on Radio Catskill, we are honoring the cultures and contributions of people with ancestors from Latin America and other Spanish-speaking countries all month long. This year's theme is Unidos. On the phone just now is Liza Fuentes, who is a research scientist at the Guttmacher Institute, a research and policy organization focused on reproductive rights. Fuentes studies focus on access and use of contraception, abortion, abortion restrictions, self-managed abortion, reproductive autonomy, and clinical training in reproductive health. Liza, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, during the pandemic, the, the discrepancy of healthcare for the Hispanic community was sort of brought up to the forefront. Reading a study earlier that uh, in September of 2020, Hispanics made up 20% of all recorded COVID-19 deaths in the country while making up only 19% of the population. Now with the Supreme Court overruling Roe versus Wade, um, putting a further strain on the healthcare system, if a full-on ban would happen for abortion in this country, what would that mean for the Hispanic population? Uh, that's a great question. So there's a couple of ways that a full ban, um, like the one recently introduced at 15 weeks or something further, which is not out of the question for advocates and politicians who want to ban abortion. There's several ways that we could expect that to affect the Latino community. Well, first and uh, foremost, Latinos make up a large proportion of the communities in the United States. And even before we get to a ban, it's worth noting that now that we are in post-Roe versus Wade period and, you know, up to a dozen states have already banned abortion, Latinos uh, about uh, in all of the states that have banned abortion um, comprise 22 percent of all Latinos in this country, including Texas, which is one of the states that has the largest Latino communities uh, or populations in the country. Um, and that's just full-out bans. If we count states that have bans at six weeks or 15 weeks, um, it grows even further. Again, Florida is a state that has the third largest Latino uh, population in the United States, and it is the state that has seen the biggest growth in Latino communities in the past 10 years. And Florida has now banned abortion um, at 15 weeks. So what we can expect is even further reduced access for Latinos uh, international bans just like all populations. But again, states that tend to have more harsh uh, or strict uh, restrictions on abortion or bans um, are also states that have significant Latino populations. Secondly, they're always just raising the question of um, under restrictive abortion laws, including bans. When it comes to the enforcement of any law, including abortion bans, what we know from history is that um, Black and Latino communities are more likely um, to be involved in law enforcement and have more seriously harsh enforcement against them. We can just take, for example, a recent case in Texas 
in which a Latina woman um, was arrested and charged with murder for having self-managed an abortion. And self-managed abortion is not illegal in Texas, and it certainly doesn't arise to murder. But nonetheless, um, this Latino woman who did not have a lot of research was caught up in the criminal justice system because of the outcome of her pregnancy. And we can see the proclivity for those types of involvements of pregnant women in the law enforcement system to unfortunately uh, be amplified under an abortion ban. And in fact, you know, other studies have shown this to be the case. Uh, in one uh, study about criminal um, involvement of pregnant women, um, specifically because of the outcomes of their pregnancy, the majority of those women were women of color, including Latinas, and more likely um, to be low income. So again, we know that abortion bans will disproportionately affect Latino communities because we live in all of the states and uh, Latinas are more likely to seek abortion care because of the reason that you said, um, underlying inequitable access to health care in the first place, right? And then unfortunately, the enforcement of those laws will not be spread evenly and Latino communities will be more harshly targeted. What are some of the barriers that you have found in your, your research that prevents Latinos from having access to proper health care? Is it language? Is it trans means of transportation, economics? What exactly are the barriers? Language and transportation are obviously key for any type of health care. Someone has to be able to be seen in their language and they have to be able to get to where uh, they're going. That's true for uh, reproductive health care, including abortion. There are many communities in the United States where Latinos are unable to be seen uh, in their language. That varies by community, right? There are, you know, we have uh, states like Texas where 40% of the population is Latino and many are bilingual. So people may be able to be seen um, in their language, but that's not necessarily true. We also know that public transportation and access to any type of transportation is really variable. And in low-end communities, you may have very little public transportation. Again, Texas is a good example where uh, the, you know, the lower Rio Grande Valley is a community that's nearly 90% Latino and has very poor access to public transportation and has, as of today, no abortion clinics. And before um, the ban, they only had one. The other thing is that we do not yet um, have a healthcare system that's on par um, with other countries of similar income. Um, and so we don't have universal health care. People have to somehow pay for their health care. We have health insurance, but that is not equitably distributed across communities. So, you know, our work um, really focuses on access to sexual reproductive health care and um, the things that people need to do that. Health insurance is, is super key. And Latina women of reproductive age, so age 18 to 44, are far more likely to be going without health insurance, for example, compared to white women. Nearly a quarter of Latinas in this country have no health insurance compared to 8% of white women in the same uh, age group. It also really depends on where Latino communities live. And um, states have differential policies with regard to making sure that people have access to health insurance. So um, many states, again, with significant Latino communities have, for example, declined to and health insurance coverage, like through Medicaid. And um, two-thirds of the, of the women who live in states that don't have Medicaid expansion, again, are women of color, including Latinas. 
We also have the differential exclusion of non-U.S. citizens from health insurance opportunities. Latinos have mixed immigration status, even in the same household, and non-citizen U.S. residents are barred from federal law from uh, even using Medicaid for their first five years in the United States. Immigrants living without documentation, which is a civil violation, are restricted from purchasing health insurance with their own money on um, Affordable Health Care Act exchanges. So when you start layering those up, you see that the barriers are not just additive, but they're compounding. And what it would take, for example, for a family to simply get the health care they need to decide if, when, and how to become pregnant and parent, um, those barriers become significant. When the census was being taken, we were listening to reports that the Latino community was very hesitant to participate in it, fear of being deported or being found uh, if they were presumed illegal. And so I guess it was a sort of a fear of a government worker, quote unquote, a government worker coming to their house. Is there a fear, have you found in your research, a fear of medical practice here or medical doctors here? Yeah, that's a really great question. We have not done research on that specifically. And in many ways, it's hard to quantify, right? Because what you want to know is who's not showing up for the care that they really need because of uh, fear that even accessing basic health care is going to involve them in either the criminal justice system or the immigration system, right? Um, but, um, you know, many experts believe that it can be significant. And in fact, you know, um, even just the idea that accessing health care could be harmful to somebody's ability to uh, continue to go to work, to not be detained, to draw on the programs that they do draw on might prevent, you know, many people not to know communities from accessing them. And so, you know, the Trump administration was very vigorous about trying to advance a public charge rule where uh, people who who use public services um, wouldn't be unable to, for example, adjust their immigration status. And it's still very difficult to this day to understand exactly how many people were, in effect, denied services because they were too scared to, to access them. And what I can say is that those factors compound Latinas' ability to access uh, abortion care. Then if you layer on top of the fact that abortion may be illegal, or even people aren't sure what the status is, which can happen when the laws are going back and forth, they all right now, what you're actually doing is creating uh, a multi-layered system in which people are really unsure what their rights and resources are to get what is essentially timely care, right? Abortion care um, should be available to someone as soon as they decide that's the service they need. And it really is um, a diminishing of the quality and dignity of the ability of Latinas and their families to be able to access that type of care. Um, if there's a lot of confusion or um, whether or not something as simple as not having documentation um, again, not a criminal offense, might be stop them from being able to get seen. What do you think could help improve the situation, help improve access to healthcare, and and prevent all the scenarios that you were just talking about? I mean, there's two sides to that question. One is, what can we practically do right now to make sure that as the effort to restrict reproductive healthcare 
not just abortion, but even contraception, prenatal care, those types of things. Um, what can we do right now to make sure that efforts to politicize that care and make it inaccessible uh, doesn't exacerbate the profound disparities that you've already mentioned and that we're talking about? And then there's the question of what what is really the proper way to ensure that everyone in a community, regardless of race, ethnicity, um, you know, where they were born uh, or what their job is, is able to get the health care that they need. Certainly for the latter, short of universal health care, really maximizing, as you say, um, bilingual information that's clear, concise, and accurate so that people understand what rights and resources are available to them is absolutely, um, it's indispensable. And, you know, public health departments have differential resources to be able to do that. But frankly, with a mandate to reduce health disparities, it needs to be a priority. You know, this is outside of the research of Guttmacher Institute. But again, when we're looking at barriers to sexual and reproductive health care, it's not just at the health system level, right? It's at the criminal justice system level and the education level, right? And so the way that law enforcement and immigration enforcement operates in and around health facilities needs to be looked at in every single um, community. Everyone should feel safe to be accessing prenatal care, contraceptive care, and abortion care um, without either, uh, without being harassed or perceived um, as being problematic for just existing. Um, those are, those are basic things that, you know, many people that we all already know, but um, every community's capacity and proclivity and political will to make sure that those are standard conditions, you know, um, varies. And Activism and community organizing around those basic conditions is still is still needed. But really, what we need is guaranteed healthcare for everyone that isn't necessarily attached to one's immigration status. You know, our policy work really focuses on looking at where the gaps are and people being able to get the care they need, and carve outs for people based on citizenship status are huge gaps in people's ability to simply plan, you know, and get the care that they need to decide about if, when, and how to become pregnant. Liza, before we go, is there anything else that I have not touched on that you want our listeners to know about, about the abortion law or your your research? You know, I'll just reiterate that abortion bans are harmful to all people that can become pregnant or are pregnant. We've seen recently, uh, as journalists are documenting cases of people even being denied medications because they have the capacity to become pregnant because out of fear that they might violate, for example, an abortion law. Um, so it's important to remember that anyone with the capacity for pregnancy is at risk under abortion bans because there is no exception to a ban or an exception to an abortion restriction um, that doesn't leave somebody behind who desperately needs that care. But it's also the case that the harms and burdens of those bans and restrictions don't fall equally upon everyone, right? Communities, particularly Black and Latino communities and Indigenous communities that, who have historically had um, their parenting and reproduction policed and involved in the criminal justice system, um, that history will follow our communities into abortion bans. And we will see enforcement fall more harshly and heavily uh, on our communities. And because of 
historic exclusion of Black and Latino and Indigenous communities from basic economic opportunity, like wage parity. It also means that our community's ability to overcome those barriers, for example, by traveling out of state, uh, which costs, frankly, more money than if you were able to get that care in your community, that for decades, um, our communities have been excluded from the opportunity to be able to have that safety net. So I'll just say one more sort of direct fact to that among many, which is that Black, Latina, and Indigenous women um, are at the lowest end of the wage gap, making about half of what white men make, right? When you've set all of that up, the ability to sort of travel, escape, go somewhere else, um, when a full ban on abortion comes to where you live, is fully um, diminished. So just wanted to point that out. You know, we have this fight to for abortion rights, and it's you know it's going on, and it just feels like sometimes all those things that you mentioned, the the barriers that that prevent access to healthcare, uh, information, uh, language barrier, uh, it just seems like sometimes the Latino community sort of gets lost in the mix and sort of gets gets left out of the discussion and. Um, and you sort of end with this sort of still void that things are progressing, but not for everyone. If, for example, these abortion bans had not happened, you know, people would be able to just go to the nearest provider in their community. Maybe they drive 10, 15 minutes. You get a babysitter to watch your kids for the afternoon. Um, and maybe you have to kind of scramble and come up with four or five hundred dollars because your health insurance doesn't cover it or you don't have health insurance. So that same woman or family for whom that situation was navigable, now we're talking about traveling not 10, 15 miles. We're talking about 50, 100, hundreds, a thousand miles, right? We're talking about finding someone to keep your kids for a couple of days. That is not something that most people have access to, right? That's who, who, who can trust their kids with that? It's getting off of work, right? And, you know, who is most likely to not have paid time off of work? The lowest wage workers. Who are the lowest wage workers? Black and Latino women. So when you really have to thread that needle to say, not just about traveling out of state, it means that for somebody for whom it was totally manageable before, now it's completely out of reach because it's gone from a few hundred dollars in a few hours of, of you know, setting up a doctor's appointment to thousands of dollars in days of your time. Only people with the most resources, um, social connections, and least fear about being involved in the criminal justice system, right? Because they're traveling across state lines or in, or in Texas uh, through immigration checkpoints, for example, are able to, to overcome that. And so that's really the narrative we have to see how Latino communities are affected. And, um, you know, in a, I hope that in a place like New York that has a really important, robust Latino community that, as you said, is growing, that includes immigrants who may be migrant farm workers or, or you know, newer families, that the state moves to protect at least uh, abortion rights so to, to make sure that uh, people can still gain care in their communities. Right, right, definitely. Who uh, we're talking to, Liza Fuentes a research scientist at the Guttmacher Institute, a research and policy organization focused on re reductive rights. Liza, thank you so much for talking to us on the local edition and letting us know about your research and what he have found and ways to us we could uh, all work together to sort of improve the situation that's happening to the, the Latina community. Thanks so much for this conversation. And that does it for the local edition news and information to keep you connected in the Catskills in Northeast Pennsylvania.
We'll be back on Monday. We do this all over again. We'll be talking to Sullivan County government, talking about the Highland Axis. Construction starts soon. And we'll be checking in with the Sullivan County Democrat about what's happening in the pages of the Sullivan County Democrat. We'll be talking to Derek Kirk. He's a reporter for the Sullivan County Democrat. If you ever miss a show, guess what? We have a podcast. You can find us anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Google, Apple, Stitcher. Search for WJFF, the local edition. Subscribe, share it, and tell your friends. Just going back on the Hispanic Heritage Month, you heard Liza Fuentes. Next week, we'll be talking to Juanita Sacramento from YEG. And then, on the following Friday, we talk to Ana Maria. She is the co-host for Out Latino for NPR. Be free to sit down with us, talk about Hispanic Heritage Month, and talking about her new role as the co-host. Don't forget to find us on social media. We're at WJFF Radio. Cats go. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We post every day who's on the show. You can also visit our website. We're at WJFFRadio.org. Slash the local edition. You can find upcoming guests, see past guests, and listen to the show. You've been listening to the local edition. I've been your host, Patricio Robayo. Have a good night, Lucy. This is Radio Casco, your NPR station. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Coming up for you is the mixtape. Have a good night, everyone. Stay safe. Enjoy your weekend.